Well, we are a peculiar people, are we not? We've sang a lot about the blood, about a dead man, and an empty tomb. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, and if you had just walked in here this morning knowing nothing of Christianity, nothing of the gospel, you would think we're a bunch of loons. But instead, we are those who understand what it means to be ransomed, bought, and paid for, changed, transformed, and given new life. And so this morning we can say, and we are saying, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Amen? Amen. We celebrate Easter this morning. We join millions and millions of people all around the globe who have already for hours been worshiping Jesus, remembering and being reminded of the glorious resurrection, what gives us life. And so we join millions of people around the world, and we join in a tradition that's been going on for 2,000 years. We celebrate Jesus and all that he's accomplished. Great music this morning. Man, Ricky, you and your team have just done awesome. Let's give them a hand this morning. Real briefly today, I want you to take your Bible, if you will, to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11. I want to just speak to this idea of Christ being the Lord. Christ the Lord. We're going to see this specifically in verse 11. But when you come here on Easter Sunday, and and maybe this is your first time to be in church in a while, we're excited that you're here. Thank you for choosing to worship with us and be a part of us and be our guest here at Red Lane Baptist. But on Easter Sunday, we're always looking at the resurrection. We're always talking about what Jesus did. That really asks an initial question. Who is this Jesus? And why has he been resurrected? Who is Jesus. That's a question that's been asked for many, many years. I would argue this morning it's a question that's been asked since Jesus was alive on this earth, since he went to the cross, and since his resurrection. U.S. News ran a story many, many years ago, back in 1993, a story entitled, Who is Jesus? And began to ask this age-old question. I want you to hear some of the things they said in answer and in response to this question. They said Jesus walked out of the Judean desert nearly 2,000 years ago, an unknown itinerant preacher proclaiming to all who would listen that the kingdom of God was at hand. It was said that he was a healer and a gifted teacher who challenged the conventional wisdom and spoke with authority as well as wit. In the villages and hillsides of Galilee, curious crowds would gather to witness his deeds and hear his teachings. Some followed him, believing he was God's anointed one, while others dismissed him as a pretender and a troublemaker. Less than three years after he began, he was arrested in Jerusalem and executed on a Roman cross. His death and the testimony of his followers that he rose from the dead would change the course of history. In fact, the religion founded on his teachings counts nearly a third of the world's population in members. Yet his words and his deeds and the meaning of his life, the meanings of death, and the meaning of his resurrection are subjects of intense debate and sometimes surprising interpretations. In this story, they said, many still ask the question of the ages, who is Jesus? This passage we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see that Paul answers the question. You see, U.S. News and other journalists may ask this question. They've been doing it for years. We're asking the same question today. Who is Jesus and why does he deserve my allegiance? And yet as we look throughout history, we see there is pretty broad consensus that Jesus was a 
miracle worker. Jesus was someone who did miraculous things. In fact, the Gospels tell us 35 different times and then allude to 12 other miracles. They tell us pretty, pretty uh, emphatically that Jesus was a miracle worker. In fact, think about what the Gospels say about Jesus. They depict him as healing the sick. They depict him as casting out demons, walking on water, feeding thousands, calming stores, and of course, raising the dead. The Jewish historian himself, Josephus, writing near the end of the first century, wrote of Jesus and spoke of him being a doer of startling deeds. And so implied in this modern debate over whether or not Jesus performed such amazing feats is the ultimate question of his identity. Who is this Jesus? Paul answers the question for us. Look there with me in Philippians chapter 2. I want to read verses 9 through 11, then I want to come back and unpack this whole passage in just a couple moments. Paul says in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As a church, we've been walking through this letter, this letter written by Paul to the church in Philippi. We've been going through it for a couple weeks now. And in this letter, as we walk through Philippians, we're learning how to have joy, how to rejoice in all circumstances. This concept of joy is mentioned 16 different times in this letter to the church at Philippi. And Paul's writing for such a reason because the church is struggling to have joy, to find joy in all things. And yet on the other hand, Paul's making it clear that he was able to rejoice. That he had found what he longed for, what he needed in Christ. And so it didn't matter what situation he came against or what came against him. He could rejoice and count it all joy. So what we see here in these first two chapters of Philippians is Paul telling the church at Philippi, telling us today that we should look to Christ first, put Christ first in our life. That's what we see in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we're going to move into this concept, this teaching on put others next, follow the example of Christ, put him first in your life, and like he served others, you serve others as well. In verse 11 here, we see that Jesus, Paul says, is Christ the Lord. And so I want to just, on this Easter Sunday morning, talk about Jesus as Christ and Lord. I want to do it in two ways. First of all, I want us to look at Jesus as Savior. Uh, Again, Paul says here, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. I think many times, especially young children, maybe even younger believers, when we Uh, we hear that name, Jesus Christ, we may tend to think that it's a last name, like I'm James Taylor, Ricky Johnson is our worship pastor, and so we may think that Jesus' last name is Christ. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here. It's not so much that he's given a last name. In fact, he's not giving a last name. What Paul is doing here is he's saying that Jesus is the Christ. What Paul is saying is Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the anointed one, spoken of, prophesied by the prophets in the Old Testament, pointed to as the one who would come to bring salvation to sinners. Look there in chapter 2, verse 5, and let's look at what Paul has to say about Jesus as the Savior. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, what's that mind? We'll look at verse 6. 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul here makes it clear that Jesus was and Jesus is far from being just another man. There are people all around the world, there's people all throughout history who have spoken of Jesus as being nothing more than just another man, another teacher, another leader, another religious figure. Paul's making it clear that this is not who Jesus is. He's not just another man. He says he enjoyed real equality with God. What does that mean? It means he was God. Paul's precisely saying that Jesus is God. He was God. He also became a real servant by taking on human flesh. What Paul's pointing to here is that Jesus, who is God, came to this earth and he took on humanity. He became a real human being. You see, the purpose, is, the purpose of Jesus' birth and his life as well as his death was to bring salvation to sinners. That's what he came to do. He didn't come to be a good example. He didn't come to, to point the way. He came to be the example, to be the way, and to give his life as a ransom. The only way for this to happen was for there to be an acceptable sacrifice offered to appease God's divine wrath against sinner and sin. That's why Jesus came. And so, therefore, Jesus did not think of his, as his equality as something to be grasped, Paul says. In other words, it's not something he's going to use for his own advantage. It's not something that's going to make his life easier while on this earth, while doing ministry. If that was the case, he's a complete failure. Because how could you ever arrest divine sovereignty? How can you ever put God the Father, God the Son on the throne or on the cross? If he's going to use that to his advantage. No. Paul says he emptied himself. The idea there is he released the appearance of his deity. He's not going to hold on to that. Paul's not saying that while Jesus was here on earth that he ceased to be God. No, what he's saying is he's fully God, but now he's taken on humanity. He is now the God-man. Humanity is added to his divinity. And so now he's in a position as God to relate to us and to pay the debt for our sin. Jesus adds the humanity. He humbles himself. He takes the form of a servant. And Paul says that took him to the cross. And there Jesus died as a perfect sacrifice to pay for, to atone for, to cover your sin and my sin. That's what we've been singing about this morning. That's why we're a peculiar people. We sing about a man who lived two millennia ago, who died on a cross, whose blood was shed. He was, he was crucified as a criminal, executed for being an insurrectionist, executed for being a person who was leading from the Jewish mindset a, a, a heretical movement. And yet we look to him and we know and understand that he was God in human flesh and he died shedding his blood so that your sins could be forgiven. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. His sin covers, or his blood covers our sin. And Jesus told us of this. He spoke of this during his life and ministry. In John 10, for instance, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, speaking of the enemy. But he speaks of himself and he says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. And the good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. No one took Jesus' life. He laid it down. And today we rejoice in Jesus as Savior because he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who paid in full the penalty for our sins. He did that on the cross through his shed blood. I love that verse in Hebrews 9.22 that tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You see, you can't be saved. You can't be forgiven. You can't be brought back into relationship with God if it wasn't for the shed blood of Jesus. You can't do it. You're as worthy, or you're as lousy and worthless as I am. Kind of messed that joke up, didn't I? <laughs> you can't do it. But Jesus can, and Jesus did. Today we look on Jesus as our Savior because He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He is our Savior. Secondly, Jesus, I want to let's look at Jesus as judge. I know many times it seems like we want to we want to look to Jesus as Savior, and we relish in that, and we glory in that, and we should, and we should celebrate that Jesus has died for our sins, that He has atoned for those sins, that He has paid them in full. We should rejoice in that. But for some reason, we don't want to understand that Jesus is also Judge. But Paul makes it clear here. He says Jesus Christ is Lord. Look again there in verse 9. Therefore, because of all that Paul is saying that Jesus has done, that he's went to the cross, he shed his blood, he humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul here states of Jesus that it's simply because of his self-emptying, because of his obedience, because of his death on the cross, that the Father has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. In fact, Paul says that it, at this name, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That means those who are in heaven today, those who would be on earth, those who would be in hell as well, all people, all creatures will bow before the name of Jesus. Why a new name? I don't know about you, but when you, I read the Bible, I want to ask questions. I want to, I want to think through different ideas of why is it saying this? What does it mean for us? And so when it says here that God the Father has given God the Son a new name, why? Why a new name? What's the significance in this name? It's not just some random renaming like we may do. You know, we today in, in America, we pick our names for our children because they sound cute. Kara and I went with three H's. I don't recommend that. Very confusing when you're calling kids down. Haley, Hannah, Hadley, one of you, do what you're supposed to do. I don't know which one you are. In the Bible, people were named differently. In the ancient world, people were named differently. Back then, names were more than just a convenient label. See, what is meant here is that God assigns to Jesus a name that is reflecting what he's achieved. It acknowledges who he is. I believe what Paul has in mind here as he's talking about Jesus and how he has a name that's above every name, I believe it's connected to the idea that when you say the name of Jesus, it's coupled with Lord. Jesus can never be your Savior if Jesus is not also Lord of your life. He's King Jesus. He's Royal King Jesus. He is God. So this title echoes the heartbeat of many Old Testament passages like Isaiah 42, 8, 
The Greek term Paul's using here is the word kurios. Its Hebrew equivalent is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And so it speaks of how God relates to humanity, how God relates to his people. It speaks of lordship. It speaks of how he is the eternal one who is disclosing himself through his covenantal name. Jesus has achieved the same lordship, the same status with God the Father over the whole broken universe. In reality, there is no sense in which he did not possess this status before. But here's the difference. Here's the caveat, if you will. Now Jesus has achieved it in a different way. He's achieved it for the first time as the God-man, as the crucified redeemer of humanity. So this highly exalted name means that every knee will bow before and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is Lord. We should not and we dare not look at this this teaching here, this passage here, and think that Paul's advocating some sort of universal salvation, that there's going to be a day, regardless of how you live your life, regardless of how you respond to the gospel, there's coming a day into the future that we will all bow our knees, we will all confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and so we will spend all of eternity with our Creator. That is not what Paul is saying here. Here's what Paul is saying. That during this life, we have opportunities to hear about Jesus, hear how the God-man has come to this world. He's lived a perfect life, given that perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to atone for and appease the wrath of God the Father. And if we will respond in faith and repentance to what he's done for us as Savior, if we will respond to him and trust him as Lord, then we can be saved. But if you don't do that, here's what's going to happen. You will stand before Jesus as judge one day. And yes, you will bow your knee and you will confess, you are Lord. You will bow your knee and say, yes, you are the Savior. But you will not say, you are my Savior. Because the opportunity's passed. But you will give a reckoning because Jesus is the judge. He will be vindicated. And so... Either we will repent and confess Jesus by faith as Savior and Lord now, or we will confess Jesus in shame and terror on that last day. But confess Him we will as we give an account for how we have responded to the gospel. Jesus will be our judge. So who is this Jesus? Paul tells us emphatically, He is Christ the Lord. Paul's not making this claim about Jesus who is domesticated, Paul's not talking about a Jesus who is easily marginalized, which we want to do today. We want Jesus to be in the margin of our lives. We want Jesus to be kind of sidelined, and we go to him when we need him, but don't dare come over into my part of my life that I want to keep to myself. Paul's not talking about a Jesus who is psychologically privatized. He's not talking about a Jesus who is remarkably sanitized. No, he's talking about a Jesus that is Lord. He's not just your personal Savior. He is your public Savior. See, when we come to Jesus, He transforms us. He changes who we are. It's not just a a little Jesus we keep in our religious closet. No, He takes over your life. This morning, if you've come to Jesus in that way, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
You know how he's transformed. You know how he's changed you. You know what you once were. You know who you are. But you also see what you're becoming. And you owe it all to him. You give him all glory. You see, in Jesus, when we look to the cross, we see unqualified divine majesty uniting with immeasurable divine mercy. Him doing all of that so that you could be a son or daughter of God. Why on this Easter Sunday morning we can say thank you Jesus for the blood. It's not because we're a bunch of weird people. It's because we understand the truth and the magnitude and the weight of that theology. It's because we understand that Jesus and Jesus alone paid the penalty for our sin. And we understand that he and he alone has made a way for our forgiveness. It's not because we're riding the coattail of grandma who might have brought you here this morning. Bless God you're here. Man, I'm grateful you're here. But if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, there's not a greater need in your life. You may say, man, I wish the gas price would go down. It's outrageous. I wish whatever. No, the greatest need in your life is none of those things that this world has to offer. The greatest need in your life is to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. When I was 18 years old, if you're a regular here, you've heard my testimony. Man, I grew up in church, kind of off and on. But in my teenage years, my dad got just radically transformed the last year of his life, and he took his family, our family, to church, and and I was in our student ministry and and grew up in that student ministry in my teenage years, becoming a leader, but, but never having a sense of assurance of salvation, being religious, trying to do the thing, but there was always this empty hole in my life. But then one morning, a Thursday morning, April 22nd or 24th of 1997, one of those days. That morning I got up like I always did. I'm a college student. I read my Bible as I always did. And I was in 1 John chapter 5. And there in the middle of that chapter, there's a verse that says, He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. And I knew I didn't have life. I was as miserable as you could be. Man, I was trying to cram religious activity into a life and make it work for myself, but it never brought a sense of assurance, purpose, or anything. I've told our church before that there were many times when my mom or my sister would be late getting home because this is way back before everybody had a cell phone. My family didn't have a cell phone back then. And I knew they're supposed to be home this one particular time, but they're like two hours late. And so I went over to the phone that had one of those long cords, if you can remember that. And I dialed somebody's phone number that I believed if Jesus was to return, they would be in heaven. And I remember they answered the phone and I hung it up real quick. Thought, whoo, I didn't miss it. That's the conviction I was under. And then that day, God got a hold of me of in that verse or with that verse and I remember I I worked that day I wasn't in class that morning and so I remember there in the workplace where I had a job and that verse just kept going through my head and through that conviction of sin brought me to a place of brokenness and repentance and I didn't care what needed to happen I just needed to be with Jesus so I got alone in the showroom of the place where I work away from co-workers I shut the door there in the bathroom, and I got down on my knees, and I said, Lord Jesus, I'm religious, and Lord Jesus, I've been trying to make it work, but it's not been working. I need you in my life. I'm a sinner, and I need forgiveness. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. 
Now, I remember standing up. I'm not a very mystical. In fact, I'm not a mystical person at all. I'm cut and dry. I'm as black and white. I'm as objective as they come. But I remember standing up that, that afternoon. My watch beeps 1 o'clock. I walk out of those doors. And for the first time in my life, I felt the relief that I'd never experienced. And it's all because I said, Jesus, I am a sinner. Forgive me. Be the Lord of my life. Transform me. I can tell you that there's been a lot of ups and downs in those 20 plus years, but God has always been faithful. I'm not the man I once was. I'm not the man I want to be, but bless God, I believe I'm on the road. And I know there's coming a day when Jesus comes or I die, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be with the Father. Is that your story this morning? On this Easter, is that your story? Do you know Jesus as Christ and do you know him as Lord? If you don't know him, there's great news. You know, the Bible tells us that we are God's creatures, that he's created. He wants to be in relationship with you. You, you may struggle this morning to make friends. You don't have to struggle to, to know whether or not God wants to be your friend. He does. He created you for that purpose. The problem in the relationship is that you're a sinner which separates you from him. But what we're celebrating on this, this Easter Sunday is that God has done everything necessary to bridge the gap. One of the songs we sang this morning talks about how there's a chasm between us, but we were in his eyesight. He was looking to us. That's what the cross is all about. That's the good news of the gospel. This morning, if that's not your story, and you need a relationship with Jesus, we're going to have a time of response. And on Easter Sunday, I'm going to do something really, really audacious because we do it every Sunday. I'm going to invite you to come. We'll get you with one of our counselors. They will walk you through the gospel and pray with you and help you come to a place where you can confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you're with us online this morning, I want to encourage you to just send us a direct message. Maybe get on our website and send us a message that way. Do something and let us know today that you want to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior.